Hi guys, this is Jimmy. For the latest episode of the Offbeat Podcast, Tosh and I interviewed Professor Nathaniel Deutsch, the author of A Fortress in Brooklyn, Race, Real Estate, and the Making of Hasidic Williamsburg. Nathaniel works at the University of California, where he's director of the Humanities Institute and Center for Jewish Studies. We spoke to him about the Satmar Hasidic community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. The Satmars are a group of Orthodox Jews who trace their origin to a region of what was then Hungary, now a part of Romania. Following the Holocaust, the Satmar leader and his surviving followers immigrated to Brooklyn, where they rebuilt their community. With more than 100,000 members, the Satmars are now the largest Hasidic group in the United States. Even if you live outside the U.S., you may have heard about the gentrification of Williamsburg where an abandoned warehouse district became a sought-after destination for artists and hipsters. Nathaniel explained to us the unlikely role the Satmars played in this process. Tosh has spent the last few weeks in New York immersing himself in the Satmar world. This interview was recorded in my apartment just a few blocks from the center of Hasidic Williamsburg. It begins with Tosh sharing some of his own observations with Nathaniel about what remains of Hungarian culture among the Satmars. We hope you enjoy it. I can tell you what my impressions were, but then of course I'll be interested in what you think because yeah. you've had a much deeper immersion in them. I think, uh, so there are two main aspects, uh, language and food, which I think has remained m- m- you know, mo- most. In terms of language, it's, there's a big gap between the older generation, you know, some of whom even came before the Holocaust and the first generation who was born here, but maybe in the 40s or the 50s. Most of them speak fairly well, a little rusty, but fairly well Hungarian, which in and of itself, it's pretty amazing. I mean, you know, you walk down in Brooklyn, the other end of the world from Hungary, and, you know, you start talking in Hungarian to these older men and they just, without batting an eye, they respond to you in Hungarian. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's kind of amazing, and in, and in terms of food, very much so. So it, it's harder to see because it, because most of them eat at home, so it's not like they go out when yeah. they go out. They actually want to eat not Hungarian because they are eating Hungarian at home. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, goulash and stuffed cabbage and schlishkis and uh, mm-hmm. palacinta and you know, the, the list is pretty long. And then there's a third aspect which is a little trickier to. It's not as tangible, but I've spoken to many you know, sort of le- leaders within the community. One of them is Josef Rapaport, who you mentioned, you also mentioned in your book. And he's saying that many of the, many of the Hasidic rituals that even to this day that they have retained in, in terms of their re- religious practices come specifically from, from Hungary. So it's Hungarian Hasidim. Some of this is a little, you know, I couldn't explain it to you because I'm not an expert on this. But you know these are sort of less tangible ways. But it, but yeah. but Hungary lives on. In, in, in yeah, that, those are that's very very interesting. All of what you just said. Um, I don't know if when you did you go to Bora Park and Williamsburg or yeah, yeah were there both. any newspapers in Hungarian? In, None. Okay, so in Borough Park, maybe I don't know when they stopped selling them, but they used to in kiosks sell Hungarian newspapers still. Um, oh really. Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't been there in a while, but um, I remember seeing them. Um, and uh, 
yes, there were many, many Hungarian. Uh, my family's also from Hungary originally. And um, oh, really? Yeah. And uh, Deutsch is like the Hungarian Jewish name par excellence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that <laughs> is very common. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. so is that how you got interested in the topic? I, I'm curious if you like if you had a personal connection to this or. Uh, I, personal, I do have a personal connection in some sense. I didn't grow up in Williamsburg and I'm not from a Hasidic family, but um, my family is from the same parts of Hungary as, huh? as, as whereabouts people. Uh, well, my grandmother was born in Papa, which is, uh, they call it Pupa. And yeah. uh, it's one of the main, now it's one of the main Hasidic. It's the second biggest in Williamsburg, the second biggest. And then, um, you know, relatives in Budapest and then also in um, a great uncle in Satmar, um, other places in what was once called Siebenbergen or, you know, Maramuresh, Transylvania, mm -hmm. that whole area that, as you know, obviously very well, was Hungary for, for most of its modern history and then was transferred to the, transferred to uh, to Romania and Ukraine and Czechoslovakia, you know. Yeah. And then parts of it were, and then also from Pressburg, which is now obviously um, uh, Bratislava, Bratislava. But at one point, at one time was considered uh, Hungarian. And, and just as an aside, you know, the, the Jewish conception of Hungary corresponds to, I mean, the traditional Jews, the Hasidic conception corresponds to the greater Hungary, which is also kind of interesting from a Hungarian point of view, I would say. No, it's very interesting. In fact, this is something I've heard repeated from, from many people that they, you know, consider themselves Hungarian Hasidim. Yeah. Even though those parts are no longer part of Hungary after the First World War. Yeah, they would never say that they're Roman. There are Romanian Hasidim. It's much smaller and it's not as significant in terms of the history, especially of post-war uh, Hasidim. But, uh, for example, um, the uh, Stefanischer, there's a, there's, a, there's a Rebbe called the Stefanischer Rebbe, and that he's considered a Romanian Rebbe. But all of the, the Munkacher Rebbe, the Satma Rebbe, the Sikhachar Rebbe, all of them, they're all Hungarian. It doesn't matter if for two decades or whatever it was, you know, part of Romania between the wars and afterwards it's not uh so that's kind of interesting as well as um you know the distinction between what you say in German and Yiddish the Oberland and Unterland that's very significant from the Jewish conception even now they they're Unterlanders the Hasidim whereas Papa for example that's Oberland which traditionally wasn't Hasidic but then it became more Hasidic so yeah, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I was just going to say that the, the pupa is an interesting exception because they are in, in, in Western Hungary, which was yeah. usually the more not reformed. They're very far from before they were Orthodox, but they were not as Orthodox or as Hasidic as Eastern Hungary. That's right. There was a there was a leader who was from Unterland who went there and established the beginnings of a Hasidic sort of community. Um, I think right before World War II. And then after World War II, he and his followers settled in Williamsburg and kind of 
establish themselves as a Hasidic community. There's a few communities like that that were not originally Hasidic. They were what's called Haredi. So Hungary was interesting. One of the things that makes it interesting from, uh, and I don't know how much of this is relevant to what you're interested in, but I'll, I'll say it and you can tell me to stop you know, if, 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 it's, if it's going No, very much so. Too much of a tangent. The thing about Hungarian Jewry in general is that it was the most extremely assimilated in many ways and the most religiously separatist, meaning it was the most like intensely orthodox and the most assimilated. So it had the extremes. Hungary had the biggest extremes probably of any country in Europe. And what was driving this this extreme on the on the orthodox end? Yeah, was it that the Hasidics who were coming in from Galicia that was part of Poland, or this was a, a native Hungarian thing? So this is what I was going to say. It wasn't actually the Hasidim; they took it up, but it was originally in Oberland. It was in the western part of Hungary and in Pressburg, now Bratislava. It was somebody named Moshe Sofer who is considered the founder of the Haredi movement. And he established a kind of, uh, when I say movement, I mean that he, in, a, in a real modern sense of having an ideology, of having, of getting involved in politics in a variety of ways, of being media savvy. And in this case, the ideology was to separate themselves from the reform Jews or neolog was what it was called in, in Hungary. And so it was really a rejection uh, uh, of that. And um, the reason why it developed there in part was because they were the ones who were most closely um, interacting with them. Whereas to the East, the Hasidim were still isolate, more isolated from that. You know, as you know, in the Carpathians and so on, it's, it's much more isolated and... Um, it took, so, it took a while, but eventually they would also come into contact with this more Western idea. So Hungary, the reason why Hungary developed this extreme was because of its location on the border between the East and the West. Mm-hmm. It bordered the, the really the kind of German speaking developments in um, the reform movement. But on the East, it was, as you point out, um, a place where you have the Hasidim in Galicia and, and, and also in um, Transylvania and so on. So it's quite interesting in that respect. There's no other place in Europe that has that, that border quality uh, from a Jewish point of view, at least. I mean, I think also from actually from a, some other points of view too. Um, and that's one of the things I probably, if you were to look at Hungarian history more generally, it's position between these two realms is very significant. Oh yeah. I mean, you can go back to, the Mongolian invasion and the Ottoman right. Empire and exactly right communism yeah, is yeah. Over the frontier zone. So, so can I ask? I'm not as well versed in this in this history, but there were you know so there was the the Sotmars were a, a discrete community in this area. How many other groups like the Sotmars were there around there? Were they relatively rare? Were there lots of these communities? Uh, Maybe just help us put it in context. Yeah, there were some. Well, Satmar itself, on the one hand, you could describe it as a very young uh, Hasidic community insofar as um, the, their, their, their leader, who was named Yol Teitelbaum, he settled in Satmar or in, in the 20th century. He wasn't from there originally, but his, and he created a following around him before World War II 
Some of those people survived the war, settled in Williamsburg. He then gathered other Hungarian Haredim. Haredi is a more general term that would include Hasidim and non-Hasidim who have some similarities, some differences. Even those who were not originally Hasidim, he was able to draw them into his circle and many of them became Hasidic. But prior to World War II, okay, so, so it was young in that respect, but old in the sense that his family was the most prominent Hasidic family, the Teitelbaum family, going back already to the 18th century in Hungary. So um, in addition, there were other ones. There was, you know, the, um, in the interwar period between World War I and World War II, there was the Munkacha Rebbe, who was uh, Munkac, uh, uh, was part of Greater Hungary and then was transferred, I think, to Czechoslovakia. Um, but he's considered a Hungarian rabbit as well. And then there were some other ones, Spinka, and um, uh, there's, there's, there's Siget, the Siget was also connected to Satmar. So there's, there's a variety. The thing about Satmar that was distinctive really was their Rebbe, their leader. Rebbe is the term that's used for a leader in the Hasidic um, tradition. Yol Tadabam was very, very charismatic and he was very determined even when he was in Satmar to create his own holy community that was separate from other, the other Jews in Satmar. Because in Satmar, there were a variety of different kinds of Jews. There were Hasidim, there were Haredi, there were Neolog, and, and he, he wanted to separate himself from all the other communities and create a community that was very, very much in the image of what he thought a holy community should be. To some extent, he was able to do that in, in Satmar, but it was, it was actually more difficult. He was able to do that more successfully, ironically, to some, to some degree, because we often think of Eastern Europe as being more, quote, traditional. But in this case, he was able to create his holy community more effectively in Brooklyn once he arrived in the United States, starting in 1946. Okay, just, uh, just to help us put this together, because I think in, in mo most people's head, you know, when you think of Hunger's history during the Holocaust, essentially every Jewish people who was outside of Budapest was killed. So how did this, this group, which was in Eastern Hungary, and most of whom were killed, uh, you know, became such this enormous, you know, Hasidic dynasty that we think of today. Right. So um, as you're alluding to, you know, starting in, uh, I'm not going to go into all the details of what happened to the Hungarian Jews. And by Hungarian Jews, I also mean the Jews who were, um, uh, you know, in that territory that shifted, that was between the wars in Romania, let's say, after, during the war in Hungary and then shifted back again. Um, more than 400,000 were murdered in, the, in uh, the last year of the war, um, including many from the, precisely the region where the Satmar community was. He was in a ghetto um, in, uh, in uh, I think he was in Klausenberg, which is called Cluj in uh, Romania. Yeah, you are a title bomb. Yeah. Uh, but then he was actually, uh, because he was very prominent, he was saved in a special transport uh, that's a, it's quite a controversial story because one of the things that characterized Teitelbaum's ideology was that he was extremely anti-Zionist, but he was actually saved by a Zionist <laughs> who, who managed to save 
uh, a few, uh, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, hundreds, maybe a thousand, I can't remember the exact number, but um, they, they ended up getting sent to a concentration camp to uh, Bergen-Belsen where he spent several months. But ultimately he uh, was able to make his way to Switzerland and then from Switzerland to Palestine. Um, so unlike the majority of the Jews from the region, um, and actually unlike many of his followers who were murdered, and, and, and unlike many of the followers who survived, whose families were murdered too, because this is something that's very key to understanding the creation of Satmar in the United States, was that it was really created by Holocaust survivors, many of whom lost their first families in the, um, in the Holocaust. Their, their wives or husbands were murdered. In many cases, their children were murdered. So it was created by, in that regard, a very traumatized um, you know, group of people who nevertheless were very determined to, um, to create a new community. And many of them, and I've, I've read this and I've also heard this from people, saw Teitelbaum, that is the leader that they, they had, as a kind of a father figure to them. Some of them who were young enough had lost their parents as well, of course. So that was part of his success. So he, so he came to, I think he first went to Israel, right? And he tried to, to mm -hmm. gather some support with limited success. And then, then he thought that maybe he'll have more luck in, in the United yeah. States. So he came to Brooklyn in 1946. And then did he essentially try to rebuild that same shtetl that same you know hasidic community that he had back in in south Mar? i would say that uh in a sense he you know in a sense you could say that maybe williamsburg and Satmar were similar in some respects and quite different in others it certainly wasn't a shtetl in the in the way that many people imagine a shtetl to be which would be you know uh a few thousand Jews, and then maybe a few, you know, typically when people think of shells, they often think of shell in Ukraine or Poland, places like that. Um, you know, maybe Ukrainian peasants and maybe a Polish nobleman somewhere, you know, this was quite different. This was, um, there was already, um, you know, some urbanization and industrialization going on. It was very multi-ethnic. Uh, place where you have ethnic Hungarians, you have Romanians, you have Roma, you have um, uh, Germans, um, ethnic Germans, um, Jews of different varieties. So in that regard, you could say it was a little bit like Brooklyn, right? You had all these different, the, 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 the ethnicities were different, but, um, but, but it was multi-ethnic. And um, and also the Hungarian, a lot of the Hungarian Jews, including the Hasidim who were in the Eastern part of Hungary, a lot of them were quite sophisticated. It depended on where they came from. You know, if they came from the more urban areas, they often knew, you know, were, had been exposed to a variety of, let's say more worldly things. There were some who came from the Carpathians and, you know, they tended to be more rural and actually some of them were engaged in um, agricultural activities and things like that. So. It's also important to emphasize that there was diversity even within within the, the Hungarian Hasidim who came. A lot of them were working class, but then there were also some who were bankers and businessmen. So that's actually also important to understand how the community gets created. It's not just about creating a holy community in a religious sense, 
that's going to be separate from the other ones, the, the other people around them. But um, it was important to have a self-sufficient community in a lot of ways. And that meant also economically, and that meant creating their own businesses that would, especially for things like kosher meat, but also for things like food, um, more generally, bakeries and so on, a whole variety of things. And because of that kind of economic diversity already with the, the, among the survivors, I think that was probably easier because they had some people who were already working class who might be carpenters, plumbers, etc. other people who were more business savvy businessmen. And so that kind of um, diversity allowed them to really create their own community, not just in a religious sense, but in other senses. And actually, that continues to this day. In certain ways, you know, you could argue that Hasidim, especially the Hungarian Hasidim, they comprise the largest working, cl working class Jewish community in the United States. Mm -hmm. Even you know, I'm sorry. I'll stop there, and you you know you can. Well, so so maybe maybe just to to bridge us a bit um, from you know this period where you had a, a small a relatively small group mm -hmm. coming to Brooklyn, and I guess it was the late 1940s to you know, and we didn't mention this, but we're sitting in Williamsburg right now, and you oh, know okay. we've walked around this community. Yeah. So so maybe you could, and I know you talk a lot about this in your book, but but maybe just sort of help bridge us from from that point in time to how they came to be the, the more prominent um, group that we see today. And I think part of this relates to the history of a lot of things that happened in, in New York city and yeah. in that neighborhood in the sixties the and the seventies and, and the eighties. For sure. So to some degree, it's a story about the history of Jews in New York city. And to some degree, it's about the history of Jews as, as, as well as the history of other ethnic, ethnic groups that become um, you know, more significant in demographic terms, in terms of their numbers, and also in terms of their cultural influence and so on, in Williamsburg, especially Puerto Ricans um, in the post-war period, ultimately other Latino groups like Dominicans, um, uh, you know, later, as well as some African-Americans. Um, but then Williamsburg, especially in the period right after the war, had a very large Italian-American community in East Williamsburg, as well as Poles, more towards the north, what's now Greenpoint. So it's it quite diverse in that regard. When the area that the Hasidim settled was South Williamsburg. So this is really a story about South Williamsburg, at least initially, because ultimately when gentrification arrives, the Hasidim will get involved beyond that South Williamsburg kind of area. But initially it's in South Williamsburg. One of the reasons they settled there is because it was the biggest Orthodox Jewish community in New York City at the time. So between the, you know, 19... 20s, 30s, into the 40s, it had the largest Orthodox Jewish community. Many cases was were Jews who left the Lower East Side and went over the Williamsburg Bridge, which was built in 1903, actually to relieve uh, overpopulation on the Lower East Side to a large extent. Before that, you just had ferries that would go across the East River. So they built the Williamsburg Bridge. Many Jews came over. The po Jewish population of Brooklyn increased dramatically. Many of them settled in Williamsburg. Others went to Brownsville, East New York, etc. The ones who settled in Williamsburg tended to be more Orthodox. They, there were some Hungarians, but most of them were Polish Jews or Russian Jews. There were some Hasidim, but um, it, it, it was uh, not a Hasidic. It, it wasn't what it became. It became a Hasidic enclave after World War II. The Hasidim from Hungary arrive, and initially, 
they settle there because of the other Jews, but they immediately try to separate themselves from the other Jews by creating their own set of institutions, their own schools, their own butchers, etc. Over time, in the 1950s, the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Queens Expressway, the BQE, which you can still see in Williamsburg, it's still there, right, is built, and that displaces a lot of people. That was one of the uh, big civil engineering projects um, uh, by Robert Moses, who was the city planner at that time. He reshaped a lot of New York City with his highway building and, and, and so on. In addition, you start to see what becomes called by sociologists white flight, where many white ethnics, Italians, Irish, Jews, others, start leaving the city. They're, they're encouraged to leave in part by real estate develop, uh, developers outside of the city, by the construction of highways, also by their fear of crime. Um, which they associate with uh, largely with African-Americans who are moving into Brooklyn at that time, and to some extent, uh, Puerto Ricans as well. Um, racism as well um, plays a factor. So there's a whole variety of factors that, 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 that are both pushing people out of areas like Brooklyn and pulling them to the suburbs. So many of the Jews who are living in Williamsburg at that point leave, except for the Hasidim. The Hasidim actually... Teitelbaum, the leader of the Satmar group, which becomes the largest Hungarian Hasidic group in Williamsburg, but not the only one. There's, you know, a number of them, but all of them are kind of under his umbrella. He's, he's really the center and his group is by far the largest. It's, it's now the largest Hasidic community in the world, Satmar, which is interesting because before World War II, the, the Polish Hasidim were much more numerous and the Ukrainian, but after World War II, Hungarian Hasidim became the dominant group demographically and in some other ways. Is, is that that's very interesting? Is that because they have more children, or was it because they're recruiting, or sort of you know people from other Hasidic dynasties joined the Hungarians? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I would say unclear whether they have more children. Although maybe they they might. Although you know all of the Hasidic groups tend to have quite a few children. I'm not sure that's it. Um, to some extent, more of them survive because, um, you know, if you look at, e even though so many Hungarian Jews were murdered relative to, to, the, to the Hasidim, at least, like in places like Poland and, and, um, and in Ukraine, um, you know, it may have been that a higher, a higher absolute number, but also what you said at the very end, they were able to attract people. Um, and I do think this is kind of ironic, but I do think it's a measure of their success, uh, part of their success because they were so hardcore and separatist, they were able to both attract and retain their community members, maybe at a higher rate. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, just maybe it's a, uh, it would be a good point for the listeners and also for us to just to, can you, can you perhaps describe in, you know, not much detail, just so we can we can understand. So, so when I, when someone thinks of a regular Orthodox Jewish person versus a Hasidic person, yeah, what are the key distinctions? Yeah. So, um, Hasid means pious one in Hebrew, and it refers to members of a Pietistic movement um, that started in Eastern Europe in the uh, in the 1700s. It was founded by somebody named the Baal Shem Tov, that was his, or Israel Baal Shem, that was his, that was his name. And it spread throughout Eastern Europe, including in Hungary. And he was from the Carpathian, so he was originally, so he was from an area that's, you know, quite proximate to Hungary. 
um, but also, but but actually, you know what what's now Ukraine? Um, um, yeah, the other side but, of the Carpathians. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but but clearly, you know, it's, it makes sense that there would be quite early presence, Hasidic presence in Hungary, given the given the geographical proximity. But eventually, it spreads to Poland, Ukraine, Lithu- parts of Lithuania, even um, Hungary, Romania, and so on. And um, it is a movement that called for, you know, a kind of pious life that did include still the value of Torah study, that is, you know, that's the Hebrew word for the Bible, um, as well as other Jewish texts, but also in some ways opened it up to kind of communicating with God in ways that went beyond study um, of holy texts, um, including things like finding uh, holiness in things like songs um, or dance and so on. And there's even some, you know, cases where Hasidim would, let's say there's famous um, Hungarian uh, folk songs that were turned into Hasidic, what's called a nigga. Sola yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, which uh, which Rebbe's who are the leaders. So another very important part of Hasidic community or movement is that uh, is that it is organized around um, leaders, male leaders, the whole community is patriarchal in general, um, and who are associated with a particular town. And followers can live in the town that the leader lives in, but they also traditionally lived in other places and would either visit the leader in the town or they would, the leader would travel to these other towns to interact with his followers. And the Rebbe's would as I say, become associated with a particular town and become known as the Satma Rebbe or the Lubavitcher Rebbe and so on. So if you think about a map of Eastern Europe from a Jewish point of view or a Hasidic point of view, at least, as having all of these different charismatic leaders, eventually that leadership position is going to be passed down from father to son, typically, sometimes to a favorite student, uh, competing with one another, with their own traditions, in Hungary, some of those traditions would be more Hungarian. So it's not like, it, on the one hand, they're separating themselves from the broader society, but at the same time, they're they're nevertheless influenced by it. So, you know, if you're an, a non-Hasidic or even non-Jewish Hungarian, and you look at certain, certain things that are going on in Hungarian Hasidic communities, you'll say, oh, that's very Hungarian to me, right? Food or songs or so on. The same thing would go for Polish Hasidim. Uh, so it's interesting because the Hungarian Hasidim are not just Hungarian because they, their ancestors lived in Hungary. They actually mm-hmm. absorbed various elements of Hungarian culture and then turned it into their own, their own culture, which is, of course, how culture works. There's never, it's impossible to, especially when it comes to food, music. These are things that, despite what some people might say, I think anyway, these are things that are always shared by people. They typically will give a, their own flavor to it or version. They might remove something and add something, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, th- that's very helpful. And then so let's let's then uh, jump back to 1940s Brooklyn. We are here, you know, this small Satmar community under the charismatic leadership of your title bomb. And unlike other Jewish people who had lived in Williamsburg, he decides not to flee the neighborhood in the 1950s and tells his people to, to stay put. That's correct. He tells his people to stay put, 
Um, initially, he actually tries to create his own uh, community in the suburbs, um, but it doesn't work. He's unable to do that. It did eventually work in the 1970s, but in the 50s and 60s, they were unable to do that. And so they were in Williamsburg and they had to figure out how to stay there. And one of the things that happened at exactly that moment was that they, the city of New York built high-rise public housing buildings in Williamsburg, precisely on those blocks where the Hasidim lived, that is in South Williamsburg. Now, um, this was at a time when whites in general were leaving public housing until the 50s and early 60s. There were a lot of whites in places like New York who lived in public public housing, um, including high-rise public housing. But in that period, many and ultimately almost all the whites in a place like, um, well, there were still some in some pockets of New York, but most whites left the public housing. And the Hasidim could have left, uh, but they decided to stay in the neighborhood and actually move into the public housing in large numbers. Um, Now, I've used the term white to refer to them. I actually think it's a little complicated to use that term for them. Um, And the reason why is because um, in certain ways, you know, if we think of race as these constructed categories, socially constructed categories, in certain ways, their experience, especially in the 60s and 70s, was more similar to their African-American and Puerto Rican neighbors than it was to, for example, Jews in um, other parts of the country who, by that point, many of whom had moved out to the suburbs. And also, um, in fact, the Hasidim petitioned a couple of agencies of the U.S. federal government to be classified officially as a um, disadvantaged minority group and were ultimately successful with one government agency. Um, Other Jews weren't, just them. So it's quite interesting in that regard. That brings up another point about how they stayed, how they were able to stay. They were able to, they very early on realized, they saw that their neighbors in Williamsburg, Williamsburg at the time was the six in the 60s, was the sixth poorest neighborhood in all of New York City. They realized that a lot of their neighbors were uh, benefiting from a lot of the new social welfare programs that were developed at the time by President Johnson um, in the mid-1960s called the Great Society. And an activist class emerged in, in Hasidic Williamsburg to apply for a whole variety of government aid programs. And Hasidim eventually became very successful at doing that. Many of them lived below the poverty line, in part because um, many they, they typically did not have college education. Uh, they have so many children. Housing costs are expensive in New York. So all those things are factored into, into whether you are below the poverty line. And so um, many of them were eligible for these government programs. And that also helped them to stay. And, and, and survive as a community. And then um, another factor that, um, that my co-author and I look at in our book is their <laughs> attitude towards crime. So at this, at Williamsburg became um, a very high crime area in the 60s. And um, it became the part of New York, of Brooklyn with the highest, con- North Brooklyn with the highest concentration of street gangs. And the Hasidim, after initially being shocked by crime, uh, of quickly 
develop a very, you could say, muscular approach to street crime, where if there was a mugging or if there was some kind of robbery, they would yell something in Yiddish and then people would just come out of their buildings and chase the guy and apprehend the suspect and in some cases beat him up. And they were then accused by some of their neighbors of being vigilantes. And so there was quite a bit of tension over this over the years in, in, in Williamsburg. Mm -hmm. so, so maybe just, I, I'd be curious if you could elaborate a bit on the relationship between the Hasidics and some of these different ethnic groups yeah. in the community over time. And then maybe that also could bring us to modern day, which you talk a lot about in the book, um, the sort of modern uh, professional and hipster culture in, in Williamsburg and, and kind of how that's played out um, with them being next to the Hasidic community. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess you could characterize the relationship between them as um, sort of occupying the same neighborhood, but living parallel lives in general. Each of the communities sort of did its own thing, in many ways avoided one another, but then also competed over resources, especially housing, especially affordable housing. So there was a kind of parallel and then competition over that. Sometimes there would be alliances over a common issue. For example, there was a plan that the city of New York had to build a giant waste incinerator on the waterfront. Williamsburg is right on the, Williamsburg, on the East River. And um, the Hasidim and the Puerto Ricans and African-Americans and the activists in the neighborhood all joined together to oppose that successfully. And then of course, like with any human beings, right? Some Hasidim and Puerto Ricans got along just because they were friendlier with one another. Some didn't. I mean, this is the way it is with any community. Some people are hard-nosed, some people are friendly. And so you would find individuals within each community that, you know, in terms of their day-to-day -day lives, they could they could get along or there would be more tension and so on. What happens in the uh, in the 1980s and then especially in the 1990s and the 2000s is that you, for the first time, you have the arrival over the Williamsburg Bridge from the Lower East Side, East Village and Soho, initially of artists who are being priced out of those areas of Lower Manhattan and look to Williamsburg as a place that has a lot of lofts because Williamsburg was very industrial. It was one of the most industrial neighborhoods in all of New York City. It had a lot of garment industry factories. It had a lot of lofts for other kinds of industries. Many of those were owned by Hasidim. So this is a key fat feature because the artists come over and some of their landlords in that initial wave were Hasidic landlords. And some of those Hasidic landlords realize that they can get involved in the real estate industry. Some of them have been involved before that, but they start more and more to see real estate as an important um, economic activity. Initially, it's focused on the north side of Williamsburg, across what's called Broadway, which is not the Broadway Manhattan, but the Broadway Williamsburg. And that's the border between South and the, between South Hasidic South Williamsburg, what's called the South Side, or Los Soros in Spanish, which is where the historically the Puerto Rican Dominican neighborhood was. And then um, and then um, on um, and Metro, on, uh, on Grand is where North Williamsburg would start. And then further north is Greenpoint, once you get to McCarran Park, for those of you who are into Williamsburg geography. And, um, 
most of their activity was there. And that's where the, that's where hipster Williamsburg was established on the North side from the North side it spread into Greenpoint still happening, spread into East Williamsburg um, and Bushwick, which is another neighborhood that's, that's neighboring. And then um, eventually though, the prices going up in North Williamsburg and the development of new buildings because Hasidim went from being landlords to also being developers. They weren't the only ones, of course, many people, once Williamsburg becomes more popular with eventually not only with artists, but with many quote hipsters, um, a lot of developers become interested, but the Hasidim had an advantage because they lived right there. And so Eventually, the whole north side and Los Ores, that is the south side, starts to become gentrified from Grant to Broadway on Bedford. It's very, every year there were more and more new, um, you know, hipster bars and restaurants and so on, until it comes right up against the border of, of South Williamsburg. And that's when some Hasidim decide to try to fight against gentrification. And they... They in 2003 they start what um, they call the war against the artists or artistin is how they refer to the artists in their actually it actually doesn't refer to art it refers to hipsters so but because their initial wave were artists they kind of used that term and applied it to all the kind of gentrifiers and and why did they think of uh, the artist as a sort of a challenge because the yeah. way you're describing it in some ways they financially benefited from them coming yes. over since they own the real estate absolutely great question first of all let me say that the war against the artist was not actual physical combat against the artist it was actually trying to pressure hasidic real estate developers and landlords to not rent and build for hipsters, but instead to build for members of their community. So it was really focused more on members of their own community. But what prompted it uh, was what you're saying. What was the threat? The threat, to some extent, was economic because gentrification in general tends to increase housing costs across the board in gentrified neighborhoods. And then the scholars of gentrification often use the expression rent gap to refer to the difference between the, 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 the housing costs uh, in a neighborhood, let's say, that's been gentrified with a one that's next to it or right, and, and, and where it tends to be lower, right? So then developers who may be priced out of the, the higher one will then go to the next one. So that's what happened between, for example, Williamsburg and Bushwick. So eventually Williamsburg gets saturated and then people start to go into Bushwick. Typically, it's a little further out, it might be have a higher crime rate, et cetera. And, and, and so there are certain challenges, but then over time that also gets um, that also gets gentrified. So part of it was that Hasidim, many of whom were poor, many of whom were working class, felt economic pressure because even though to some extent their real estate market within South Williamsburg, within the enclave there, is is different. The prices are lower than it is outside of it, they were still going up. Also, they were, their population was increasing, so they wanted to expand. They could no longer expand into the north side, so then they start to try to expand. They try to buy property, but it's getting more and more expensive because they're competing now with a whole bunch of other developers, not just Hasidim, but other developers. And so they try to expand into, and they ultimately do, 
into Clinton Hill and Bedford-Stuyvesant, which are neighborhoods right to the south of Williamsburg across Flushing Avenue. And that becomes what's called New Williamsburg. So the Hasidim area goes over there by the Marcy houses, which are public housing, which people are into hip hop. That's where Jay-Z is from, for example. Um, can, I, can I just ask one question? Yeah. So in terms of how they were able to keep that part of South Williamsburg completely distinct, like if you, you know, if you look at North Williamsburg, it's, as you said, completely gentrified now, development everywhere. Yeah. But South Williamsburg, even, even to this day, has been largely immune to that. And um, the population is still centered on this community. Yeah. How, was this, does this go back to the war on the artisan? Yeah. And is it because of the ownership structure of those buildings? Yes. How has it That's also, so, the, so the ownership structure, for sure. I mean, Hasidim own, um, you know, and, and made big effort to, to buy the property there. Um, and it took decades, but they brought, bought a lot of the, most of the property in what's called the Hasidic triangle because it's of the way it's bordered. Um, in addition, and this is also important, there's the public housing. So the housing that they don't own is, is a lot of it is public housing. And if you look at New York city, the areas that are not gentrified are around the public housing. It's the public house. Those are like little islands gentrification will be around it but but then you know the the housing itself for obvious reasons because you can't but you have to you know you're out there's an enormous waiting list and so on it doesn't get gentrified so um so that's why you know the the hasidic enclave in south williamsburg has retained its character because hasidim own it the property and because the rest of it is public housing there are some buildings that aren't owned by hasidim but the majority would be owned by Hasidim there. And sorry, just to make sure I understand. So in, in practice, how would it work? So let's say, you know, someone likes th that part of, you know, Southern Williamsburg where most of the Hasidim live, they, you know, find it's interesting, the, there's different culture and they would, let's say they would like to rent an apartment and uh, like, so, so how, how would it play out? Okay, so renting is another issue. First of all, let me, I'm, I'm gonna say one thing. I, I wanna get back to, your question about you know what was it about the what was it about the gentrifiers that were threatening the, the 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 economic stuff was threatening but i don't think that was the main threat so i'll get to the main threat in a second but your question so it's important to distinguish between owning and renting because hasidim bought those properties at a time when williamsburg like let's say the south bronx you could you could basically like put down a few dollars and get a building because people were burning down buildings to get insurance so Remember that that's a key to this story is that they benefited from just staying there during the 60s and 70s. So they were able to buy a lot of buildings for very cheap when no one else was interested. And then they benefited. When it comes to renting, they're very aware of, uh, of federal laws regarding um, housing discrimination. When I say very aware, they, they, they they have people they'll 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 read it they have articles in Yiddish on it in their newspapers so they're very careful not to engage in um, in uh, uh, behaviors that at the very least will um, make them you know subject to lawsuits or to prosecution by on those statutes at the same time. Um, there are a lot of reasons why many people don't want to live who are not Hasidic don't want to live in buildings in Hasidic Williamsburg. 
um, because a lot of people feel unwelcome, let's say, in in a enclave that is so separatist and is so and, you know has this very particular character and um, so that you know it, it's a good question like how much of it is Hasidim creating the conditions where our people aren't going to rent but still avoiding you know breaking the law and how much of it is other people not wanting to rent in those buildings because maybe um, you know they don't want to live among a, a lot of Hasidim. They don't feel comfortable doing that. Also, the ones that have been built more recently, let's say, a lot of them will be built with features that that appeal to Hasidim, but not to many other people. For example, multiple bedrooms, two kitchens, and so on. Maybe the style is not what, you know, so um, that that discourages, let's say, people from even trying to rent. Um, it's a great and complicated question, Um you know, how is it that that when it comes to rentals, they wouldn't, you know, the, the certain buildings might be almost exclusively Hasidic. And, uh, um, um, but what I was going to say about the threat is the, the bigger threat that they talked about a lot more than the financial stuff was actually uh, moral. They thought that the gentrifiers were a moral threat. To their community and that's what they devoted most of the say the war against the artists to focusing on which when i say the war against the artists they would publish a lot of newspaper articles condemning hasidic landlords or developers from developing buildings or renting to Hasid, to non-hasidim and so on because actually some hasidic developers will gladly rent to non-hasidim many will the thing is they're not supposed to do it within certain areas mm-hmm. okay um, so they said that they, in the, in these articles that I'm referring to, for example, they would condemn gentrifiers for being immoral in the way that they would dress in some of the way that they would occupy space, um, in the way that they would interact with other people. Um, perhaps even more importantly, I think was the threat that a lot of, um, Hasidim felt that gentrifiers posed insofar as some of the younger Hasidim might be attracted to the lifestyle of the hipsters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They might want to go to the bars. They might want to go to cafes. They might want to dress differently. They might want to listen to the music. They might want to leave their community or at least experiment with the way of life that they see, that they saw just a couple of blocks away in North Williamsburg. And I think that they felt that that way of life was perhaps more appealing to the members of their community than, for example, the way of life of their uh, Puerto Rican or, or Black neighbors, who were, after all, um, you know, racially discriminated against minority. Um, and yet the, the, the hipsters represented, you know, at least in their minds, uh, and to some extent, the reality, right, a wealthier um, subgroup. So do you think do you think that's happened to some extent? Like, what's the state of the younger generation yeah. in that neighborhood? Are, are they experiencing cultural pressures, and you know, you're seeing some level of assimilation, or do you think even decades in the future, like this community is going to remain largely intact, kind of as it is today? Right. Um, 
I think that um, yes, the answer is yes and no. Um, yes, they have been a, there have been um, exposed to these influences and they've had an impact. Um, they've had an impact in so far as um, to some extent they've assimilated some of it and tried to incorporate it into their community. For example, by opening up, especially in New Williamsburg, that is the part of the neighborhood, Hasidic neighborhood that they've expanded into parts of Bed-Stuy and Clinton Hill on the other side of Flushing. Um, they've, they've done it by, let's say, having um, high-end stores there of different kinds, um, by uh, other kinds of businesses that clearly reflect the influence of North Williamsburg, as well as of other things that they've come into contact with via the internet, which came, which happened at the same time as gentrification. So that's another main factor for the, for the, for the absorption of influences is through the internet. So in a way you could say that that helps to neutralize the appeal of let's say North Williamsburg or the hipster area, because they can, to some extent participate in some of the same things in their own neighborhood now in a way that they couldn't before. At the same time, there are individuals who have definitely left the community completely. Some of them have like very explicitly gone over to North Williamsburg and you know, live in North Williamsburg or other neighborhoods like it. Um, in other cases, there are Hasidim who in some ways, you know, will, will experiment with what's going on, kind of lifestyle, culture in North Williamsburg, um, and then go back to their own community and maybe keep it, you know, and in general, keep it secret. You know, they might share with some individuals in the community, but in general, they're keeping that secret because that's frowned upon. You know, there's also a variety of opinions because some of the Hasidim in Williamsburg are just like, yeah, whatever, you know, they want to do that. Meaning the, the people in North Williamsburg, you know, um, cares. We, 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 they'll say like in, 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 in Yiddish and Hebrew, you say gullus. It means exile. Like, okay, we're living in exile. So, so they'll do what they want to do. We'll do what we want to do. That's what we've been doing when we were in Hungary. We did the same thing. You can't make a big deal about it. Every, you know, people, as long as they leave you alone, we leave them alone, it's fine. There's a lot of people who are just like that. There are other people who are like, I actually like them, you know, <laughs> or, or, or some of them are nice. Some of them are not nice like anyone else. They, they, they understand, you know, there's a lot of people who are just like, yeah, it's like some Hasidim are nice, some are not nice. And the same, some are friendly, some are not friendly, you know? Um, so it's like that, in my opinion, it's like that with all groups, right? Um, and then there are some who are, who are like, no, who are really diehard opposed to any contact and they feel like any contact or any kind of opening will contaminate morally, spiritually their community. So you find a whole bunch of, responses within the community itself and is this split uh, more generational you think so that the younger tend to be and and how should we imagine is this sort of you know one percent of of the hasidim or this is like 30 percent that we're talking you know about? i i don't know most you know i would say that the minority are really like hardcore and they tend to be hardcore in a lot of issues they are hardcore about like women's modesty like how the women in their own community should dress or comport themselves on the street and the same people are going to be really hardcore about like contact with uh with the gentrifiers or the hipsters whatever term you want to use uh and 
um, I, you know, th- those are a minority. I mean, most, most people in the community are just like live and let live. You know, they may have a views, you know, may not be, you know, they have, let's say, more complex views. If you were to ask them, they say, well, I meant, even if they didn't know people who were, let's say, on the North side, I'm sure, from my interactions, they'd say, yeah, some are nice, some are not nice, you know, or uh, so I'd say that's the ma- majority, even though they want to, they're proud of their, the, you know, I, I can't speak for them, obviously. That's why I'm trying to also convey that there's a variety of views. Um, the reality is that they, they have lived by now for decades, right, with gentrification. So it's not as if they haven't seen that they can continue that, that their community has continued. The thing that's probably, you know, the, uh, uh, Jimmy, your, your, your last part of your question, like, will they continue into the future? Um, a lot of that will be probably less to do with cultural assimilation and pressures and all of that. Because I think now it's kind of, it's reached a point where, yeah, we, we can stay here. You know, some, some, some members of our community might leave, but, but, but still enough will stay more to do with the fact that as their community grows numerically, they've, they've run out of places in Brooklyn, basically, to expand into. Definitely in North Brooklyn. I mean, as you know from being there, it's, there isn't a whole lot of place to expand into. So how have they tried to manage that? Are there satellite communities? And like, what do you yes. think they could look to do in the future? Yeah, yeah. Excellent point. Yeah, there are satellite communities. Some of them are in upstate New York. Um, but they've also looked at... I was up in uh, Kyrgyz, you all. Yeah, right. So that's the biggest one. And then, um, which is named after their leader, Yol Tarabam. And then um, in Jersey City, there was there is one. Um, they've tried to look at other places in Philadelphia, in Connecticut, even Florida. They've, they've been looking for places to help alleviate the demographic pressure um, my prediction would be that they, they'll continue to maintain their community in Williamsburg, um, even as many people, especially younger people, have to go elsewhere to establish households. And then some of them, when the older people in Williamsburg pass away, some of them will, re- will move back into Williamsburg and take over that housing. Um, that would be my guess. But on the other hand, if you were to look at the Hasidim in Hungary, you know, hundred years ago, you'd probably say they were going to be in Hungary for a long time. So yeah. things can change. Um, just one, one more question in terms of the, um, the gentrification that's taken place in the Northern part of uh, Williamsburg. Even today, is it true that much of the real estate is owned by the local Hasidim or there's been a you know, change in ownership and that's, that's, you know, it, it really depends. I mean, um, it depends. I mean, a lot of, as you know, um, you know, there's a lot of houses in North Williamsburg um, and uh, there's some brownstones, but, but also some houses. I mean, th- those are tend to be owned by, by private individuals who are non-Hasidic. Um, there are some buildings that were developed by Hasidim and then sold. And then there's other ones that are developed by Hasidim and still owned by Hasidim. Sometimes it's hard to get a sense of what's owned by what, because there are a lot of LLCs. There are a lot of, um, uh, you know, different kind of entities that have different relationships. And there's actually an article in The Real Deal, which is a new uh, real estate uh, thing on Hasidic 
on, a, on one particular Hasidic uh, developer. Um, I think it came out this week. Um, I don't know if the most of it, um, I have no idea what the, what the percentages in North Williamsburg, sometimes they lose out. I mean, especially now, you know, in terms of the com competition, because there are parts of Williamsburg that even buildings that were previously owned by Hasidim, one of them might have sold it. And then to now the big New York's, the Manhattan real estate families mm -hmm. uh, have, have gotten involved, especially on Kent. Um, and then you also have foreign capital, the Dutch, Chinese. So there's also like, you know, big U.S. real estate firms that are located in Pennsylvania or somewhere. So it's totally, it's, it's changed dramatically since the beginning. Um, the beginning, you could, you know, now the amount of capital you have to raise is really big for a big development. And so, you, you know, that, that makes it more difficult to get to get involved mm -hmm. you have to figure out financing so it's changed quite a bit and actually that's one of the reasons why increasingly the lower end hasidic developers have now tried to buy buildings and develop in that's other parts of north brooklyn crown heights even into east new york and so on which is a whole other story you know but um it's very interesting just one last question from my end would be that so how much of the real estate wealth that has been generated you know, from this gentrification, is it, is it concentrated in a few, you know, real estate, uh, you know, CEOs hands, or does it make its way back to the community, which itself is actually low income and most right. of its families are not well off at all? Right. So that's a very important question. And it brought, raises the broader issue of, in a way, back to the war against the artists. Um, it's a kind of catch 22 for the Hasidim in Williamsburg, because on the one hand, real estate became the most important economic engine for the community. You know, previously, um, some of them have been involved in the garment industry, both as owning the factories, but also working. A lot of men and women worked on the factory floors, you know. Um, and then diamonds. Some of them were working on 47th Street, um, which is the big diamond um, uh, exchange in, in uh, both in terms of stores, in terms of clubs in New York City. But both of those industries started declining uh, around the same time the gentrification arrived in Williamsburg. And so they were looking for something and their population increased at that time too. So they were looking for some new industry and real estate was there. And it's not just the, so, so into your question, does the money come into the rest of the community? So first of all, there are certain families and individuals who make a lot of money because of the structure of Hasidic community, they are expected to, to subsidize other members of the community to some extent. And they help to subsidize the leadership class of the community too. At the same time, at the same time, as I've mentioned, the gentrification and the development that they engage in tends to make it more difficult in terms of affordable housing and, and has exacerbated the housing crisis. So that hurts a lot of Hasidim, um, the poor and working class Hasidim. And then thirdly, real estate is not just about developers or landlords. Those are the ones who get attention in the media. And those are the ones who are stereotyped, sometimes anti-Semitic stereotypes of the Jewish landlord, you know, um, the, the bad Jewish landlord and so on. Um, 
many Hasidim are involved in other aspects of the real estate industry. If you spend any time in, you know, connected to New York real estate, you know that there's a million different professions that are connected to the real estate in a place like New York. There's the, there's the lumber yards. So there's a big Hasidic lumber yard, um, certified lumber. Um, there's, there's all of the plumbers, electricians, et cetera. A lot of Hasidim do that. There's the truck drivers. There's inspectors. There's mortgage brokers. There's all these like names of things that some of them I can't even remember because it's like, you're the one who does this thing during the transaction. <laughs> you know, there's, and, and, and they do that. So that is to say that um, Hasidim are involved in all of that. And if you go into, if you go especially into New Williamsburg, you'll see Hasidic um, owned, you know, uh, HVAC store, you know, a Hasidic place that sells light fixtures, a Hasidic place that all of that's connected. And Hasidim are not the only ones who go there. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who are involved in the real estate business in Brooklyn work with Hasidim. So, um, or buy stuff at Hasidic places. So it's, it's become very, it's, it's a, on the one hand, you could say that it concentrates wealth, especially in a certain sector of s- small number of people, but it also, s- the wealth has, you know, entered. Into yeah, creating the, new jobs. and sort Creating of new jobs. They're working class yeah. jobs and so on, but uh, yeah. So it's a very, it's very dependent on real estate to a large extent, um, especially in Williamsburg, but, but there are other things that people do too. They're, actually, it's very entrepreneurial community mm-hmm. in general. That's mm-hmm. a whole other thing that maybe gentrification has also helped encourage. Yeah, I think there's a perception, and even I had this coming into this, you know, a month ago before I immersed myself in the in this local Hasidim, Hungarian Hasidim society. That yeah. sort of, what do these people do? I wasn't even sure. Do they spend most of the day in the synagogue and praying? Yeah. But but no, I mean the answer is that you know they they have regular jobs and they do have to go to pray three times a day. But yeah, that's a very important point because in this way it's different from some other communities and especially different from communities in Israel where there tends to be more uh, men who are devoting most of their time to prayer. The Hasidim in Williamsburg, from the very beginning, their leader, Yol Teitelbaum, was, was very emphatic that his followers had to work. So most of them are working from, you know, 18 years old, 19, you know, they, they might spend a few years learning, but then many of them will just go off and and work. So um, I'm curious, how did they, how do they, how do they view you? I mean, are they curious about, you know, this visitor? It was, it was, I was just saying to Jimmy uh, yeah. this afternoon, it was very interesting. They were apprehensive until the moment I told them I was from Hungary and I'm, that itself was already open, open yeah. doors. And, and, you know, then some of them started speaking to me in Hungarian and then we immediately had a connection. So I think compared to 99% of the people who try to go there, I had a much yeah. better access just because of that. Right. Which speaks to, like, like they're curious, and like anyone, uh, I mean, some are not curious, but some are curious, and also, like any community, they respond if they think they might have a connection to you. Yeah, they, exactly. You know? So it's, it's an interesting dynamic, yeah. Uh, it's, and, you know, I, I, I often felt like that, there was sort of one guy when I was up in Kiryas Yoel, 
and he started singing to me on his own initiative, the Sola Kakashmar. And at the end, he was like, you know, I'm I'm so glad that that unlike other outsiders, you don't you don't think I'm weird, you know, that you seem comfortable around me. Yeah. So that's it. Yeah, I mean that speaks to you know I don't know you, but you you, you I could see that you know you maybe even especially with communities like them that are in general very separatist and self-segregating it's the ability to connect on a human level which it's hard to teach someone it's just you know that's what a lot you know you can you can actually have a you know a, a nice connection uh that that goes beyond the differences um, yeah um, and I guess my last question is that we, we could you don't have to answer if you don't want, but but yeah. to me this is this has been very interesting that I have you know many you know I, I lived in New York for several years and I have many secular Jewish friends and and, and for them and when I told them about the article I'm currently working on about you know the Hasidim they tend to be very judgmental sure and yeah. immediately condemn 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 and and in part for valid reasons right like they treat men like women and then you know there's no freedom and so. Yes. And, but at the same time, when I'm with them, I was, it was hard not to feel an affection. And perhaps part of it comes from this Hungarian connection, but they're very nice to me. And there's this communal aspect that sort of draws you in. And it was just, but then, you know, then, then, then you have, I always kept, felt like I had to defend myself from, from non-Hasidim secular Jews. Yes. Um, well, I think that, that that works both ways. I think that there has long been tension between the, the Hasidim in a place like Williamsburg and the non, uh, and the, uh, let's say the more secular, uh, American Jews. Absolutely. It, it's, it's a two way street and that's, a it's, and, and in many ways, you know, for the Hasidim, for example, when it came to politics, when it comes to politics, they would much rather have deal with a non Hasidic politician than a Jewish politician. Cause they assume that the Jewish politician is going to discriminate against them. <laughs> So if there's, you've, you've mentioned some of the reasons why on the other side, you know, and, 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 and they do, and there's also Hasidim who will say about the non-Hasidic Jews, especially, you know, the more secular ones, oh, you know, look at you, you're, you're, you're barely a Jew, or you're acting like a, you know, a non-Jew, you know, and so, so it, the criticism flows in both directions, to be fair about it. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that you as a, you know, as a Hungarian, and just, I can, even just, you know, talking with you, I can see how, like, with your personality and everything, that that in many ways they would be, m- many Hasidim at least, would be, you know, ha- ha- you know, maybe have more to talk with you about or be more open to talking to you than maybe, you know, your typical, if there is such a thing, you know, American Jew who they might assume would judge that and not, mm-hmm. not necessarily they might not be as curious about them as they are about you because you're coming from this place that for them is almost mythological. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's yeah. Hungary, you know, I mean, Magyar is like this whole thing, you know, so. <laughs> Ungvar. Um, they, you know, they do go back. Um, right. I know there's a lot of trips. Tour, there's a certain places. With, yes. With the so that, to that, that, that for them going back there is like this, spiritual experience and they they've they will they've 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 spent some people actually within the community criticize this because they think it's not a good use of money but they'll spend a lot of money to to rebuild cemeteries and rebuild synagogues and it's it's a quite an interesting phenomenon yeah 
Yeah, I know they go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, um, Great light. I think that's everything for me. Yeah, yeah. No, this I'm is, glad I, you went. In, I'm glad you spent time. I just want to say uh, lastly that yeah. uh, Nathaniel, I, I really want to congratulate on your book because it it managed to achieve that that rare combination when it's you know packed with very detailed and well-researched information, but it's also very far from being dry or academic. It's, there's a narrative to it that was easy to, you know, I breezed through it in, in two days. I think it's a wonderful book. So uh, congratulations. Yeah, I, I would absolutely echo that. I mean, I, I live in the neighborhood. And so yeah. for me, it was awesome to be able to read about these things. And then, you know, I can, I can walk around and see the stuff you're talking about in the book. So it was, it was fascinating to me. I, I, I really enjoyed it.